you can go into a lot of stories and go, okay, so who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? And then you get complex things where there's an anti-hero or the good guy becomes the bad guy. And I don't think that this does anything that simple. And I do kind of love it for that. Welcome to Unravelings. I'm Fafix. And I'm Charlotte. And this week we're talking about the TV series Legion. We have a couple of bits of housekeeping to get into before that. First of all, we now have a logo. That's pretty exciting. We'll also soon, hopefully, I've listened to the first edit of it, have theme music. That'll be also exciting. It's probably not on this episode, but it should be on the next one. We should also have some big announcements coming out within a few days of this episode posting. So go and check our social media pages if you haven't done already. We do also now have a Patreon uh, where you can support the show and get access to a Discord where you can discuss with us and other listeners about the show. You can listen to our live recordings and chime in. Uh, You can also get behind the scenes episodes, bonus mini episodes where we talk about other things like the Harley Quinn TV series and being John Malkovich. And you can even get a rambling edition of the show that is the whole thing that we record largely unedited except for quality and silence. And you can really get that released early. We want to take a moment and thank our Patreons who have supported us so far. We let our Patreons choose how they're shouted out, what name they uh, use, what names they use, or what phrases they want said instead of their name, apparently. That's a thing we're doing. Um, (laughs) So we'd like to thank at the $2 tier, Other From Another Mother, who gets access to the Discord and gets this shout out. Thank you for supporting us. We'd like to thank the Lost Ramblers at the $3 level. Nick Fraser and Ryan Brenner. We'd like to thank uh, the pre-rambler Gungar at the $5 tier. You can find Gungar streaming delightfully cute video games on Twitch at that and username. And also sometimes scary ones. Well, sometimes they're cute and scary. It's true. Uh, and we'd also like to thank... <laughs> Restate that. What? It sounded like you said that we'd also like to spank... <laughs> Whoever you were about to say. And at the $7 tier. (laughs) I'm fairly sure that's not what you meant. We'd also like to thank the Adventurous Ramblers at the $7 tier, Jane Dards, Andrew Chang, and Kat Martin. Thanks, everybody. We really, really appreciate your support. If you or anyone you know would like to hear your name said on a podcast, you can support us at patreon.com forward slash unramblings. We yep. really appreciate it. It helps us to keep doing the show and hopefully improve the quality of it and the regularity of it and maybe make it into a full-time job one day. That'd be nice. That was a lot of uh, stuff, wasn't it? Okay. We'll obviously be spoiling the entirety of the three seasons of Legion. If we have any other spoilers, we'll drop those in right here, along with any content warnings we might have. Hello! We talk a decent amount about the Pink Floyd album, The Wall, which we did an episode on just before this one. Nothing groundbreaking, just a couple of bits here, pieces here and there. There are a few spoilers for mid-series Buffy the Vampire Slayer, 
and a couple of sort of meta X-Men universe things. If you know anything about Charles Xavier, you're probably fine. There are a decent number of content warnings for this one. We will be talking about suicide and self-harm, mental illness, drug abuse, and rape in this episode. Okay, and back to the past. Welcome back. So, let's get into it. Okay, I've been talking for a while. Do you want to do a plot summary? We have been getting more and more into stories where plot summaries are very difficult to do. Yeah, it is pretty complicated. I mean, so when you strip it down, Legion is about the mutant David Haller from the X-Men universe, a mutant with crazy telepathic and reality warping powers. And a lot of it focuses on the difference between like perception and mental illness. Like, is he crazy? At least in the beginning, the, the central question is, is he a mutant with these crazy reality warping powers or is he mentally ill? And that's actually a really complicated question because it's actually both. Um, his mind has been occupied by the evicted consciousness of the Shadow King, another really powerful telepathic mutant who was kicked out of his own body by Charles Xavier, who's David's father. And so throughout this story, we're kind of unpacking, like, is David a good person? Has his crazy ability to manipulate reality in other people's minds, like, corrupted him to the point where he's not a good person? And there's a lot of push-pull with him in the Shadow King, who is also very corrupt and trying to control a lot of things. Eventually, it kind of swings into this like revenge story where like David is kind of trying to get revenge on Charles Xavier from the past for having given him up trying kind of trying to get revenge on the Shadow King for occupying his mind but also kind of trying to undo all of the things that made his life shitty um it gets very weird there toward the end um yes just at the end otherwise I mean, the show is very normal <laughs> sure but in terms of trying to summarize it so yeah like it's kind of about who's right, who's wrong, what, is, what even is reality and perception, um, that kind of thing. Would you say that's a decent plot summary? I think it's maybe not, but, you know, I don't really know what else to do with this. I think it's the main points. Um, I mean, it is about that colonization of David's mind by the Shadow King and his managing to get the Shadow King out of his mind and then fighting against the Shadow King and his own past and his own mind. And the damage caused already. Like, just because he kicked the Shadow King out of his mind didn't mean that he was suddenly all better. Like, the trauma and the fucked upness that happened still affected him going forward and still affected his outlook and who he was as a person. And so then it's all this, like, fight to undo that stuff. We can get into a bit more, but I think that there's implications that it wasn't just the Shadow King that made him that way. Yeah. It, it is an interesting trend with our, with our recent episodes with The Wall and Canticle for Leibowitz and this. There's a lot of very abstract ideas being told in very abstract ways. Yeah. So we've talked, we, you have talked a little bit about... Well, did you want to try and summarize it? No, I think that you said mostly what I would say. I think that we're going to give much more with going into this. Yeah, it's hard because since there are three seasons and there's a... A kind of a different story in each one even if there it's the overarching thing centers on the same character and characters since it's not just about david but the focus is very different and no i think this is actually an interesting one to be doing after canticle for Leibowitz, where it is told told in three parts that are sort of independent and questioning what's inevitable 
I suppose. But anyway, so you mentioned that the importance of the show is perception and what reality is. So I think the logical place to start here is to talk about the narrator that we're given for these seasons. For season two? Uh, no, like as in the point of view that we're given for the three seasons. Mm. The majority of season one is all told from David's point of view. There's a couple of points where you get a little bit more of what's going on with Sid and people going like, no, he's really crazy. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it is David and it's that is that how much of this is taking place in the real world? How much of it is taking place in his mind? And how much of a difference between those two is there really? I think that he's not, because he's not got full control of his reality bending powers in the first season. I think he's drugged so much. Yeah. In the first season, I don't think it's that he can't do it because it's shown from previous flashbacks um, or it's shown in flashbacks that he had the reality warping abilities before. But not intentionally. Yeah. But he is on so many like sedating medications at the beginning and most of the first season that he can't exercise those abilities particularly well. But in season one, he's... Like, in retrospect, he's very clearly an unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. But it is still a question as you're going through it. I think that they managed to carry that through season two as well. Mm-hmm. Where there's a lot of uncertainty about who's the bad guy. Yeah. And then in season three, like, they do a lot to tell the story from more than one perspective. And considering different ideas of who's right i mean david is certainly unsettled and we see him kill more people um which does cast him into more of a negative quote bad guy light right but a big part of that too is it's it's showing the psychosis that he's in where he doesn't view any of those as real casualties or he doesn't view the reality he's currently in as permanent or unchangeable and so because he's viewing reality fundamentally differently from everyone else, which is what psychosis is, he doesn't have the same moral compass or limitations on what he thinks is justified. If he, he thinks he can undo anything that happens that he doesn't like. And so at that point, you do whatever's expedient. And it very much is he's playing life like a video game and just wiping out obstacles wantonly with the expectations that it'll all be fine in the end. Yeah, just from like the storytelling side of it. It's interesting in the first season and a half or so, we're questioning if he's an unreliable narrator. By the time we hit season three, we know he is. Mm-hmm. But he's no longer... Whereas before he we're shown what David thinks, by season three we're being shown what's happened and having David explain why that's okay. Yeah, and it, it's interesting as an exploration of mental illness, which this is clearly set up to be, because in the beginning there there is this murkiness of, okay, people are telling me that I'm mentally ill and that my perception of reality cannot be trusted. People are telling me that. I'm not really sure how true that is from David's perspective. And there's very little of an outside perspective to give you any sort of context. And so at that point, it is hard to be sure. Like, are they just gaslighting me? Am I not crazy? Am I not mentally ill? Is it just that they're telling me I am because they're afraid of my power, which is a very real situation with him? And that is going on to a certain extent. 
he is being gaslit about reality because they are legitimately afraid of his power, but he is also mentally ill, like, but that's not clear. And so at the beginning you're asking, is it just one or the other when it is actually both? And then in the second one, that sort of starts to break down and you kind of start to see the effect of his questioning the legitimacy of other people's questioning of his sanity. Um, and you see the effects of that on other people with the way that he's trying to impose his will on other people. And he's starting to break his own moral compass and making deals with the Shadow King and things like that, just beginning to giving the Shadow King some measure of control, like in the part where Lenny um, dies, or I guess that's Sid who takes his body. But doesn't he like come to an agreement with the Shadow King in season two? Yeah. I mean, he does it a few times where it's like sort of secret and both he and Farouk multiple times are working across the lines like that. Yeah. And so, you know, no longer really having a sense of like whose side he's on himself. And you start to see how terrifying it is to be around somebody who could go off at any moment, who's much more powerful than you and very unstable. Yeah. And a big key in season one is how underestimated he is. I don't know. There's a whole thing of like people telling people who are on mental health medication, oh, you shouldn't take that stuff because it changes you and you, you don't need it. You should just overcome it. And that's shitty. Mm -hmm. Melanie's role in season one kind of is that. Mm -hmm. And like through her agents to go to David and be like, no, you're not ill. You're an amazing telepath and they're wrong. Mm -hmm. And she's wrong. It's mm -hmm. both. Yeah. Um, and taking him out of that situation entirely and not giving him that care and the support that he needs to deal with those issues is yeah. a precipitating event. Yeah. Well, it's part of what sets him up in the third season to think that all of his problems are because of Farouk and that he himself has no internal, like endogenous mental illness he because melanie has given him this idea no you're not sick you are just powerful and people are lying to you and then later on he's like oh, okay well you know what i haven't haven't been perceiving reality properly and he's finding that out at the same time that he's finding out that his mind hasn't really been his own and so he conflates farouk's presence with his mental illness and thinks they're the same thing and so he thinks that if he kicks out Farouk, he should be fine. And when it, that doesn't happen, then he blames the damage in his mind on, like, that it's damage Farouk left. That it's Farouk messed him up. And if he can go back to before Farouk came into his mind, he would be fine. He'd develop perfectly normally and happily and healthily. And, that, and he might. He might. We talked about mm. this while we were watching it. Usually when you have a severe mental illness like schizophrenia, which David seems to have, there's usually a genetic predisposition, a family history, which we know he has. That we find out in the third season, his mother's family had a strong history of mental illness with psychotic features. And there's usually, so there's that genetic basis and often some sort of triggering traumatic situation or experience that tends to make people more likely to develop a full disorder like schizophrenia. And that's what happened with him. And maybe it was Farouk, but it could have been something else. It also could have happened even without that. It does sometimes, you know? Yeah, I think that there's an interesting conversation to be had about what does the new timeline look like? Uh, we didn't mention it in the synopsis, but I mean, for anyone who hasn't, like I know this came out like a year ago. 
at the end of the show, they've gone back in time and stopped Xavier going off and killing Farouk that led to Farouk ending up in David's mind and all this sort of thing. It means that David won't be put up for adoption by his parents and will be raised by his mother and his father instead. And be raised by Xavier, someone else who has telepathic abilities and will know what's going on when David's developing telepathic and reality-altering abilities. So I think a big part of understanding what the showrunners are telling us is going to happen in that is tied into something that we knew there was a connection to but didn't realize how much until we finished watching this just the other day. We did The Wall for our last episode by Pink Floyd, which is based on the experiences of an original member of Pink Floyd, Sid Barrett's, or Sidney Barrett's experiences in a mental health institution. The connection to Legion is fairly solid, considering that Sid, the other inpatient at the mental health hospital at the start of the season one, is actually called Sidney Barrett. And is David's primary love interest yeah. for a large portion of the series. Yeah. But the end of the series contains something that we'll get into a bit more where they do these weird sort of music video things. But they include the entirety of the song Mother from the Wall. And that song's not about a healthy relationship, but it is about a mother imparting all of her fears and terror of the world into their child, making it so they're the only one that can make things okay, quotes. Yeah, and um, being overprotective in general. With what we see of David's mother, like, this is a woman who lived through the Holocaust and was in camps and such. She doesn't have a sunny, optimistic view on the world. And particularly, she has a very dark view of humanity and of people. She does not think the best of them and believes that ultimately our lives matter to us a lot more than they matter to anyone else and that we shouldn't be surprised when other people don't care about our lives. And it's interesting, I was thinking about this over the last few days, and I didn't say anything about it because I wanted to bring it up on the podcast. I think it's a very interesting way where they've basically had Xavier marry Magneto. He's a Holocaust survivor who views humanity as the most small-minded and shallow and greedy, short-sighted creatures who will not take care of someone else if it means any risk to themselves. And that's very much what Gabrielle views of other humans. She thinks she's seen mass graves and she's like, yeah, it bothers you when other people don't take your life into account because you think your life matters. It doesn't to everybody. And that's just true of people. And this is her view. And she says to Xavier, she hopes David is more like him than like her, that he'll see the best in people, but she can't. And this is something that like she values in Xavier that he kind of helps her, I guess, know there's somebody good in the world. But I just think it's very interesting that even though she's a human and not another mutant, she doesn't have that mutant supremacist thing from that perspective. She kind of still is a mutant supremacist. She still thinks that Xavier's abilities are amazing and like make him better than other people in some ways. Like that's implied at least to me. I don't know if that comes across to you, but I think she's very much like Magneto in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think that's a fair argument. She She's certainly very impressed by him, but I feel like the thinking he's better than other people does come more down to his character. Mm-hmm. But even that, I think, is, again, similar to Magneto. Like He respects the hell out of Charles being able to maintain that perspective and that optimism, 
He just can't do it himself. He's like, oh, that's so nice. I wish I could believe that. Yeah. And I'll keep having this conversation with you, but you haven't convinced me. Yeah. I think that if we took the song Mother by itself, it tells us that a lot of those toxic ideas about humanity might get imparted to David. Mm-hmm. However, so much of the show does pull from this Pink Floyd ethos. I don't think it's unreasonable to look at the largest story of the wall when analyzing it. Mm-hmm. And a large part of that story is also his father going off to die at war, mm-hmm. which for the original David is kind of the case in that he went away to war and came back and gave David up to adoption. Because David's mother had been killed and he didn't want to risk David being targeted by the Shadow King. Who was already inside him. Haha, right. dramatic but, irony. Yeah, he didn't know. Um, <laughs> but I think if you take out that brick from the wall, mm-hmm. then that works as a balance for Gabriella. Yeah, no, I agree that David that David would have a balance in terms of views on humanity with Charles also present raising him, you know, having that outlook, countering some of what he's bound to read from Gabrielle's mind about, you know, pessimism about other people. And also Xavier is a powerful telepath. So it, you know, the beginnings of any sort of really dysfunctional orientations are, is going to be apparent to him to be able to kind of check pretty early and be like, let's talk about some of these ideas. And I don't, think you're seeing the full picture and things like that. Like I suspect that that would end up balancing out and also that he would get very early intervention if he did have mental illness issues arising um, as a part of his family history. I, I don't think that he would be stuck in that position he is at the in the first season when he's been raised by an adoptive family who listen when other people tell them, oh no, David just has a really severe form of mental illness and just needs to be on all of these drugs and in a hospital forever. Yeah. I think the other thing that isn't necessarily considered is the Xavier that is raising David is the Xavier that has fought alongside David. That David is gone, but within we can get into how the time travel does not work in this. They fall afoul of the most common mistakes, but he knows what David might become. Right. So he knows to look out for certain things. Yeah. Did you want to talk about families and adoption for a moment? Uh, sure. I do think it's kind of messed up how in the third season there is such a focus on, uh, oh, I need to fix things so that I'm never raised by this adoptive family. And I... not just that, like, so I'm never given up for adoption and so, you know... Farouk doesn't colonize my mind, et cetera. But it's also like there's there's no reflection on the family that raised him, the experience he had growing up with his sister, who then like after his adoptive parents died, like took care of him and he was very close to her. And like there's no sense of regret for, you know, losing that part of his experience and those connections. And it's kind of a slap in the face, I feel like, to adoptive family. Yeah, I I agree. I don't think it's fair to say that the focus is on not being raised by the adoptive family so much as being raised by the family that knows who he is and his powers, etc. Yeah, but I mean, it's especially so 
that there were moments when it would make a lot of sense for him to have a thought about his adoptive family. Yeah, and, and they I know, didn't. <laughs> I know that he's a long way gone, but there's the point at which Lenny, who is now in the body of his sister, but looks like Lenny, not his sister, like kills herself in front of him. And it's difficult because I think at that point he might have already mourned his sister and is also at that point where he's like, it doesn't matter what happens, I'll fix it, it's fine. That's what time travel's for. It's particularly weird to me, like it bothered me because when Lenny is killing herself in front of David, the focus is on her face, like the camera's focused on her face. And when Lenny takes over Amy's body, Amy being David's sister, her eyes stay Amy's eyes. Because previously Lenny had like brown eyes, I think, and um, Amy had green eyes. And there, at that point, like he's looking into his sister's eyes as the person in her body is killing that body. And there's not like a flicker. Like we see what David is thinking a lot. We see flashes of his perception and what he is thinking about when different things are happening a lot. So it wouldn't have been stylistically out of place for him to have a flash of like either maybe the moment when he realized that Lenny was in Amy's body or the moment he realized that Amy was dead, you know, of kind of reliving that moment there when that's happening, but they don't do that. And it just serves to compound what they'd already been doing and sort of erasing the impact of his adoptive family on who he is. They'd kind of ignored Amy since that revelation that she was dead and Lenny was in her body. Like, they just don't really revisit it much after that. Yeah. Bear with me. I'm just trying to work out what the best place to go is to get to all these points. Sorry. Did I sidetrack us? Uh, we, we have gone all over my time at this point. <laughs> I mean, that was bound to happen with this particular one. I mean, it is a mastery of nonlinear storytelling, so... Mm -hmm. which again so is the wall which it clearly draws a lot of influence from like the wall and i think you were saying dark side of the moon but i haven't seen that we'll come back to that so there's some more to say on family and some more to say on perception but i think we can circle back to those i think one of the things we need to sort of lay some groundwork on is what this show says about morality as that's a fairly important grounding point you can go into a lot of stories and go Okay, so who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? And then you get complex things where there's an anti-hero or the good guy becomes the bad guy. And I don't think that this does anything that simple. And I do kind of love it for that. Yeah, it's very messy. And who is good and who is bad changes a lot. And I think change is an important word because within the narrative they change, but the amount of character growth that happens is pretty impressive in some cases and the way that that's told with a lot of things in the story being hinted at and shown as with the wall there's a lot of things in the show where it doesn't hold your hand mm -hmm. um, and then a few things where it does beat you over the head with it uh, but i think that this might be one of the shows we spent the most time going wait what and running it back a moment yeah Sometimes it is very clear what they're trying to say, and other times it's very obscure. But I think that there's three character arcs that we should look at in particular, and then one more at the end for just how they deal with this good, bad, and change thing. Mm -hmm. And I think it might seem strange, but the first place to start with that is Farouk. Okay, I feel like we could start with David too, but Farouk's good. I think Farouk informs too much of David's change to start there. Okay. So Farouk in season one is... 
unequivocally bad. He's the Shadow King, he's the yellow-eyed demon, and then they work out he might be a Malfruk, might be the Shadow King, but he's literally portrayed as a giant, gruesome blob thing with, like, glowing eyes that's in the shadows and, like... It's much more sort of slasher style filming for those scenes where he's going to jump out and get you. Does that make sense? Yeah, he's a boogeyman in David's mind. Boogeyman, great word for it. In season two, it gets a little bit more nuanced because we have a physical representation for him that is human rather mm-hmm. than whatever the yellow-eyed demon is. I guess it's humanoid, but... Right, and the weird thing is, I think that's pretty clearly what David's mind perceives. Yeah. The intrusive presence of the Shadow King as. It's, like, that perception of Farouk is, like, part of David's immune system, basically. Like, his mental immune system. And I think a big part of that is that he has identified this demon since childhood. Yeah. So, we see Farouk displayed in a few different forms in that first season. And they're all these things that David's brain has put in that place. There's the yellow-eyed demon. There's the weird child from the storybook. Yeah, which is also, it turns out, a doll that he had in the cradle that his mom brought back from the Holocaust. Like, it's this creepy 1940s doll. Yes, it's very creepy. But so it seems like that's where that comes from. And there's Lenny, which we'll get into more later. But it's sort of tied to a lot of his fears and subbed in with a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. Because we're getting it all from David's perception, Farouk is perceived as entirely bad. Yeah. The showrunners do an interesting thing with having Farouk take over Oliver's body. Mm -hmm. And Oliver is such an easy character to like. Mm -hmm. He's portrayed by Jermaine Clemens, who's just... Delightful. Charming. He's not got a lot of scenes in the first season, but he's... You know, there are a lot of very fun, weird scenes that are endearing. And now he's housing this horrible boogeyman. Boogeyman? Like Joel Boogeyman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But while he's in this body, he's going off and doing terrible things like killing Amy. Right. Um, but there's also communication that we see. They have sit-down conversations within mental spaces. So you start to get more reasoning of that character. Which makes sense because Oliver is not only a fully adult man, but also a telepath. He himself is a reasonably powerful telepathic mutant, someone that Farouk sees as more of an equal than he would an infant whose mind he's been molding since forever. Right, but as as well as Oliver and Farouk having conversations, David and Farouk are having conversations now. Mm-hmm. So this point of view that we're getting the show from is sitting down and going, ah, you're Farouk, you're the Shadow King, you're terrible. And Farouk's going, well, no, the things I do are perfectly reasonable and rational, and let me explain why. It's not a change in the character, but it's a way in which they change how the audience perceives the character to make it viable to get to the end of the season and have a turnaround where the people of Division 3 are working with Farouk. Mm -hmm. Not that Farouk's a great guy. No, don't, don't don't get me wrong. Very much not so. Season three then casts him as almost a good guy because he's working with Division Three, because David seems so unstable and his ideas are getting ignored. He does at one point like give David access to a spaceship, which means that he 
kills a whole load of people. But time fixes that, so it's fine. But it's oh. also, like, that's part of a trap. Like, that is part of the plan that he has concocted with them to lure him there and put him in a position where Sid can get past his defenses and attack him, like, with her powers to steal his mind and take his body. Yeah. So within the storytelling, they've changed how we perceive Farouk because they take our perception of him away from David to be our own. Right. Instead of seeing him only through the eyes of the person he's victimized most egregiously, they're giving us a perspective on him from someone who's not been hurt by him in that way. Right. And we get a little bit more of Farouk's own perception. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, this makes it feel like he's had this great character arc and being redefined as good while still doing some shitty things. When we get the back in time and he's talking to his old self, it does become clear that his arc of growth happened in the 30 years preceding the show. Um, it all happens during that time that he's inside David's mind and is from that perception of David's own growing up. And it's been David perceiving this as an intruder in his mind that has cast him into this role as a bad guy. But by the time that Farouk is out in the world in seasons two and three, he's already got to the point where he goes back to his old self in the past and pities him for how petty he is. Does that make sense? Yeah. If not, then we need to delete like the last 15 minutes of me mm. getting this thesis out. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely painting this idea that Farouk became a better person because he got to like relive a childhood as part of David's mind and like had to oppose somebody he understood so deeply because he had been in their mind their entire growing up, like other than like the first year of life. So he could never hate David, no matter how messed up David got or what mistakes he made because he was there for the ride the whole time. He knew everything that went into it. And so it's hard to judge somebody for that when you understand all the factors that go into it. And so it's one of those things where like, you know, a lot of the time people will have these biases about certain things until they hear about someone's individual life experience that contextualizes it. This happens a lot with mental illness, with drug abuse, with abortion, all sorts of things. And it's like, you might have this knee jerk response of like, oh, that addiction is a factor of weak will or that, you know, abortion is always a terrible decision and moral, whatever. And then you hear about somebody's unique situation of like, oh, they were in these circumstances that made these choices make sense or even necessary. And then those things become harder and harder to control in the case of addiction a lot of the time, or like this horrible no-win scenario that leads to somebody making the call to have an abortion. And it's like, if until you're in the, that position, sometimes it's hard to understand why someone would do that. But Farouk was there in the body of this person who had a distorted perception of reality, partially because of him, partially because of his own brain chemistry. We'll never know what the balance of that is. But then also who goes through this journey of drug abuse and institutionalization and making all of these other like calls based on what he knows about the world, which is obviously filtered in a way that he can't necessarily control. And so then the actions he takes based on those streams of information and from the current world and from his past experiences lead to logical choices, even if those look horrible from the outside. Does that make sense? Like it does. Farouk gets that stuff because he was there. I think to simplify 
that a little bit. I think that it's more that he makes a real connection with someone and has a relationship about someone he cares about. It's occasionally hard to think of him as caring about David, but that's very much what he expresses as his actual feelings. Yeah, he says that, and he he views it that way. I mean, he's not a good parent, don't get me wrong, yeah, he but views, he wants to be. He views himself, yeah, he views himself as a parent to David, like he was in David's mind raising David. But David didn't know that, you know? He was a baby, and he didn't have the tools to recognize Farouk as an intruder in his brain. So there's just, you know, they're not on the same playing field. There's not a level of like mutual engagement in that relationship. So that might be the perception from Farouk's perspective, but he's still victimizing David in that situation, even if he's viewing it as this higher order thing. Like, I don't know, it kind of reminds me of those situations, which are horrible, of like somebody kidnapping somebody and then like keeping them for years and taking care of them and like yeah you're feeding them and you're making sure they have everything they need to be physically healthy but that doesn't make you their parent you're still their imprisoner and you're still abusing them but my point is that Farouk seems to have grown through that time the one that decided to take up residence inside of David's head is shown as the bad Farouk Mm -hmm. but by the time he's come out the other side he's grown and does seem to have regret for what he's done and how it has turned things out sure I don't think like this isn't a black and white story no it's not that's part of my point here he hasn't he isn't a good person but he is a better person Yeah, there's an interesting parallel there with, like, Farouk's occupation of David's mind and, like, the Western forces occupation of Farouk's country that leads or is in some ways connected to his antagonism to Charles Xavier. And this idea of, like, these people are here for their own reasons to take the things that they want and I'm going to be resentful of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. um, I I like that they have that parallel in there. And David plays into it to put old Farouk off balance when he's in the past and shows up. He's clearly an American. So he says he's with the American forces there and like even calls out that that's an occupying force and most people do not like them. Yeah. Um, And it's it does seem to be needling Farouk to kind of make him kind of pissed off so that he will not be on top of his game. Combined with the weird music in his brain when Farouk's used to being able to... Read minds. Yeah. But like in that way, David is kind of doing the same thing, uh, portraying himself as this sort of boogeyman occupying force. Yeah, that's fair. It's that all about colonization stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You did use the word earlier of Farouk Mm -hmm. colonized David. Intentionally. Very intentionally. So let's talk about David, which I regret saying because his arc is not a simple one. It really isn't. There's sort of this implication. Okay, so he starts out as the victim. Yes. And he he continues to see himself that way the whole time. Yes. Well past the point where it's a lot more complicated than that because he has started in his trauma and the behaviors he's learned and like the internalization of his own supremacy has started to severely hurt and infringe on the rights and will of other people. So at that point, he's the victim and a future version of Sydney has told her present version that he's going to end the world at some point and she needs to work with Farouk to stop him so at that point we already know he has lost 
a sense of like where other people's autonomy, like where that line is. And he's started messing with people's minds, making people forget important things. He rapes Sid by sleeping with her after wiping memories from her mind and, you know, having sex with her under false pretenses, which she then finds out about and is understandably horrified and betrayed. So he goes well past being the victim himself and into being the perpetrator of violence on other people. But he's still so used to seeing himself as the victim that he refuses to hear or acknowledge the complaints of other people. By the third season, like he's concluded, okay, yeah, maybe I've done shitty things and maybe I'm not doing the best stuff, but that's not my fault because Farouk messed up my brain and I just need to go back in time and make it so that didn't happen and then I'll be a good person. Um, that's kind of what, and that, and it works. Like that's what he does. Yeah, it's, I was kind of surprised that the end of the show is, and David's plan succeeds. Like, oh, well, right? okay. He does wipe out an entire timeline of people and the people in it aren't happy about it. They're like, oh, I mean, they're sort of reassured by the embodiment of time that things work out better this way, trust me. But it's interesting because David starts out, as you say, as a victim, becomes a bad guy and then becomes in quotes and then remains a bad guy but realizes that he is a bad guy and that he doesn't want to be a bad guy spends a lot of time stating that he isn't bad while also trying to make it so he is good in a roundabout way right i think what you're meaning at the end there like he spends a lot of time saying he's a good person deserves love while simultaneously following a plan that only makes sense to do if you think you're not a good person and you want to be a good person. Yes, and what, that's a better way of saying what, what I was trying to say. What frustrates me about this whole thing is that he, some part of him acknowledges, okay, I'm a bad person. I don't want to be a bad person, but this is where we are. And he decides, okay, I'm just going to start over with a whole new life, which also erases any progress or things other people like about their lives in this timeline. Yeah, fuck all those guys. My not having to work to be a better person is what's most important here. Like the entitlement of David in this series knows no bounds. He literally creates an entirely new, new timeline so he doesn't have to do like the hard work and personal self-reflection and atonement for the shit he's done in his life. Well, I think you someone know? tells him he's... It, I, I think Sid says something towards the end of season two after, you know, he's raped her. So she, mm -hmm. fair thing to say um, that like, no, I can't forgive you for this. Mm -hmm. There's not a world where I forgive you. So well, his, well, no. I think his take is that he's gone too far. So the only way to fix that is to undo going too far. But I think that he's misunderstanding that conversation because what, sure. what happens in that exchange is he's saying oh, I will undo it so it didn't happen. You know, so I didn't rape you. I'll, I'll turn back the clock so that didn't happen. And she's like, no, but you'd still be the same person who did that to me. I just wouldn't know. And that's what she says. And he seems to take that to mean, okay, because that happened, you're irrevocably a bad person now. And there's nothing you can do to not be that guy. And what she's saying is there's nothing you can do to not have been that guy. This is who you are now. You're the person who will not acknowledge that that was wrong and that you took my will away from me and that you hurt me. He won't. He's just trying to make... It's the same thing happens in Buffy the Vampire Slayer with Willow, where like she wipes Tara's memory of their fight 
and then they have sex, I think. But then Tara finds out that she did that and breaks up with her, understandably. Then I think Willow tries to erase her memory of finding out and erases everyone's minds. And Tara eventually does find out and like actually, actually breaks up with her. And it's that, okay, you, you clearly have shown you have no respect for my mind. You have no respect for my will or my autonomy. And making it so I don't know doesn't mean that you're not that person. But that doesn't mean that they never get back together. They do eventually after Willow does the work, realizes she's an addict, realizes that she's internalized all these fucked up ideas about like, if I can, then it's okay. If I have this power, then I'm entitled to use it, which is the problem that David has in this. Yeah, He knows he can. And so he does. He cannot resist the temptation to infringe on other people's minds, but that doesn't mean he has to be that person forever. People do reform from being terrible people from making terrible choices they it is possible for people to change to unlearn horrible programming and behaviors he just doesn't want to because that sounds like it's hard and for some reason it fucking works and everyone else's lives are erased yeah yeah it's also a very strange ending because sid and all the others go back to try and stop him and inadvertently end up in a position where instead of stopping him they're just making sure his plan works. Yeah, they end up helping him. Yeah, they end up saving him. Mm-hmm. Presumably, if they didn't save his mother and him from the time demons and they died there, they would still get erased. But they do work to save his mother, without whom presumably David doesn't improve. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is weird. There's also some implication that without his plan working the time traveler doesn't reach her like full time traveler form and call off the time demon the time eating demons and maybe that's how the world ends is the time eating demons continue to eat time and the time stream collapses that i think is a plausible way that future sydney was talking about the world ending yeah so i don't know that it necessarily works in the way you were saying but maybe it does i don't know i'm a little turned around no i think it's that they end up helping him by accident yes. is the main thing. Yes. Like they fail to stop him and instead have to help him. Right. Okay, let's talk about Lenny. What the hell does that say? Only you will know. If you oh, don't... I have no idea. If you don't know, I certainly have no way of knowing. I think it says Union Fottable. Oh, I know what that says. What is unconscionable? Uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. Um, a whole lot of, like, Lenny's thing is making the audience uncomfortable. Oh, um, yeah. Like, that's what that point was about. I mean, Lenny is a weird Frankenstein of a character, or Frankenstein's monster of a character. I am 100% certain that the reason that Lenny stays around is that she was intended to only be in season one and everyone loved her, so they had to find a way of bringing her back. Because she's a representation of the Shadow King in season one that's born out of a combination of people in David's mind. Like, born of a druggie he hung out with called Lenny. Called Benny. Called Benny. And someone who died in the hospital. Lenore, I think? Yes, you're right. It's purely a figment of David's imagination that he's given life to that then... Farouk puts in a real body. The dead body of Amy, David's sister. Uh, I don't think she's dead at the time. Are you sure? The screaming would suggest otherwise. 
I thought they kill her first. No, I think they kill her by doing it. Ah, uh, okay. I think it has to be a living body that the DNA is put into. Then how does Farouk end up being alive? Is his body still alive? Oh, Farouk's really powerful. I don't know. Maybe I misread something in that. Anyway, uh. point being in Amy's body. Yes. Lenny's arc throughout the series is so strange. Yeah. You sort of have to discount season one because she's really representing Farouk. Yeah. But then season two, her sort of has the memories of times with David that never actually happened. And only she and David know of the idea of them. Yeah. They're like weird constructed memories from like, basically she's an imaginary friend that David has. And so he has a whole lot of memories with his imaginary friend. And then Farouk makes the imaginary friend a real person. It's weird. She's effectively a bystander for the whole thing. Mm, for season two? By season three, she's a bystander who's got swept up in it. But she she always has this goal of not being there. She tries to go away in season two and go back to her old life that didn't exist and gets pulled back into it. Yeah, I don't know that I'd call Lenny a bystander, though, because Lenny keeps being a henchman. Yeah. And keeps getting roped into being a henchman for someone. Like, she's a henchman for Farouk for a while when he first has pulled the imaginary friend concept out of David's brain. When he leaves David's brain, he takes that idea of Lenny with him. And that concept is trapped in Farouk's mind. And then Farouk puts that imaginary friend into an actual living body as a test to see if he can do that with his own mind into another body it's clearly like at that point like that's clearly a guinea pig situation i guess what i really mean is that she has barely any agency sure because in in season two she's doing what farouk says because she wants farouk is saying i'll give you a body Mm -hmm. after he had she has that Like, she's just been doing what Farouk says. After she has that, she tries to leave, and David pulls her back in. Right. And then she sort of becomes David's henchman, like, right-hand person. Right. But it's how much control does she actually have? Because David still has control over her. He tells her to go and get some food and that she's going to be happy now. She comes Mm -hmm. back at him angry later, and he makes her happy. Yeah. And then... When she wants to leave with Salmon, like it's an idea that she wants to do, but never manages to enact it. And that's kind of her arc. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because Lenny isn't a real person in a lot of ways, but is kind of made a real person in a lot of ways. And so it's like as a person who is created from a bunch of spare parts, she doesn't actually get to have a regular life. Right. So you have Farouk who's set up as being shown as a bad guy and ultimately we learn he isn't as bad as he seems still bad just not as bad as he seems we have david who's set up as being a victim and a good guy who's been set upon who turns into being much more of a bad guy but still wins at the end i guess and then you have lenny who is almost devoid of morality she doesn't seem to have a lot of guilt over anything that she does Partially because she's not a real person. And it's not until that last few scenes with her where she lives a lifetime in a few moments that she gets real growth in that situation. 
And it's worth bearing in mind that in the new timeline, there's no Lenny. Yeah. Like, like there's no was... reason, like, yeah, that because Lenny was never born, Lenny will never be created in the weird amalgamation way that happens in this time stream. Yeah. But you do see with her and with so many other people how important children are shown as being in the show, which does suggest a lack of ability to grow without them in some presence and also kind of shits on... I don't know if it does shit on the adoption thing, actually, because of Sid's storyline. Because of Sid's storyline? Oh, because Melanie and Oliver thing? Yeah. Lenny's having a child is definitely, like, a massive change in her outlook on life for Mm -hmm. a very brief period of time. Time? No, entirely, because it leads to her suicide. Yes. They don't, they don't ever explain how that happens, like how Salmon is pregnant. It seems to be a thing like David made it happen, probably. Like, But they don't say that explicitly. But it, if you read between the lines... That must be what happens. That must yeah. be what happens. Like the two of them, Lenny and Salmon, who are both women, want a child. And so David's like, sure, and just makes Salmon pregnant. At least that's what it seems like is happening. No? Yeah. I'm trying to think through other possibilities... And there's some very weird implications with the fact that Lenny was born of the idea of a mm-hmm. man and of a woman. But I'm not sure I want to go down that rabbit hole right now. But yeah, so, but Lenny, who is like a child of a mind or of two minds, has a child of the mind also. Yeah. Which is interesting. And that child also can't live a regular life because of the time being eaten while that life is li- being lived. So you see, like, during a period of time when the time demons are eating time and so things are accelerating or freezing in weird ways, Salmon goes into labor, has the baby, and Lenny and Salmon, like, raise the baby, and the baby has her own child somehow all in this, like, one room. Um, And then, like, Lenny is there at her daughter's deathbed all in a 20-minute period of time. I think Salmon dies. In childbirth? I think she's eaten by the time demons. Oh, okay. Salmon doesn't seem to be there for the Lenny raising the daughter situation. After the birth, she's gone. And part of what Lenny is upset about afterwards is the fact that she's not there anymore. And that, yeah, that she lost both Salmon and their child. Yeah. But yeah, but it all seems real to Lenny. Like, even though it just jumps from one stage to the next... And Lenny seems kind of bewildered at each new jump. She also seems to feel that impact of all of those years of that entire life, even though she physically isn't touched by any of them and looks the same. Yeah. It breaks something in her to have had that experience. Yeah. The way that time demons work isn't entirely clear. No, it's very weird and hand wavy in the last season. As time travel often is. So we were talking about how these changes happen. How do people get to be better or different? And I think we came to the conclusion that it's almost always by being a child. Yeah, or raising a child. Yeah, primarily through being one um, is the main idea with Farouk, David, and Sid. Yeah. They all get or will get options of a second childhood. And it does give that sort of impression that there's a point at which you can't go back from. Mm-hmm. It sort of reinforces that idea that David is too far gone. Which I think is explicitly stated that he's too far gone. Yeah. And I have serious issues with that. 
again, as I stated before, like it implies that you can't become a better person or work on yourself to change things about yourself that you've come to recognize are unhealthy and bad or immoral. You know, it's that kind of thinking that leads a lot of people to write off people with criminal convictions and things like that. Like this perception that once you've made a mistake that has some sort of implications for your character, that there's no way of improving your character or working on that. And that's just not true. People can change. And it's, again, it's that fundamental thing that um, Gabrielle and Xavier fight about, about like the value of a human being. And like, I think it's implied, if not stated, that Charles believes people can change and Gabrielle probably doesn't. Yeah. David seems to have internalized some of the most pessimistic views of like people can't change, or at least not past a certain point. Uh, given that he decides that there's no point trying to be a better person. He just has to start over and never become a bad one. But it's really driven home with the whole Sid storyline in one episode of season three. Yeah. In which David has pushed her mind out of her body and she ends up on the astral plane and gets sort of adopted, adopted by Oliver and Melanie and lives an entire lifetime up to her current age in a few minutes, I guess. And it's about that being what's necessary for her to understand her role in the world and what she needs to do and who you can help and who you can't. Right. Even in that part, because she, when she arrives on the astral plane, she's a baby and Oliver and Melanie raise her again, but they raise her in a safe and healthy nurturing structured environment where she doesn't have the risk of touching someone and switching places with them the way that she does in the real world because that's her mutant ability and so she's able to learn to feel safe and feel secure and trust other people but yeah one of the other things that happens is that Melanie and Oliver adopt a teenager who is addicted to drugs and you know, is safe with them for a while, but then leaves to go and pursue her unhealthy life choices with the big bad wolf and is too far gone uh, to be saved. Like that's the end message of that whole segment is that some people you can't save. And that very much is a like, you know, we got her too late. Which is interesting because I think the, the message that they're probably trying to say is that people have to want to be saved. Yes. I think that is what they're trying to say. But It that- does get muddied. Yeah, but it's not clear. It's that in combination with the whole thing with David's too far gone. I think what ends up coming through is that there's a point of no return on being a good person, that there is a point beyond which people can't change. And I think that you're right. The a critical part of that is you have to want to change. You have to acknowledge you. the first step really is admitting that you have a problem because you're not going to work on the problem unless you know it's there. But that's not what comes through because David at a certain point does seem at least a part of him clearly knows because otherwise he wouldn't be making all these excuses about I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it. He knows the things he's doing are bad and he's doing them anyway because he thinks he can undo them. He can. And so he will. It's most expedient and easiest to fix it by having it never be a problem. So he knows there's a problem there. You know what I mean? Uh, He just doesn't want to work on it. And that's a different problem. Yeah. He's trying to find a shortcut. Yeah. That's fair. That whole thing about needing to be a child is 
doubled down on with Farouk's change. Yeah. In that it seems that his growth does seem to be because he got to be a child through living David's childhood. It's Mm -hmm. his whole, I felt and experienced everything that he felt and experienced. He went through being a child again. He got to feel what it felt like to grow up in that environment. Yeah. And I do think an important aspect of Farouk's experience with that is he's having that experience as an adult, able to perceive certain dimensions of being a child that you don't notice when you're a child. There are things that people do to try and make sure children are safe and give children chances and teach them things that it's hard to appreciate when you're a child just because of your developmental level and things. But you see all of the different times that like David gets in trouble and makes mistakes and there are a lot of influences in his life who are trying to help him. And that's something that Farouk was able to appreciate even when David couldn't. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Like he can sort of see the hope in humanity occasionally, even when David can't. Yeah, like David clearly had a close relationship with his sister and like his sister and his parents were clearly good people, like who cared about him and wanted him to be safe and healthy. And so even if David, with his perception altered by Farouk slash potentially other mental illness situations going on, may not have been able to get on to like a developmentally like typical track where he ended up with all the issues he ends up with in the first season. Farouk could see all of the structures and the love that were there to try and have that happen or give that a chance. I think some of those ideas are kind of reinforced between the lines with the way that Sydney grows up because her mutant ability to switch bodies, like if she comes in contact with a human being, she loses control of her own body and gains control of theirs and they are in her body for like a brief amount of time and because of that she never really felt safe or secure in her body and she felt like she existed to be used by other people in a lot of ways and also her experiences weren't really able to be sort of guided or structured in a way like you don't want teenagers to experience anything immediately. There are certain things that, you know, you should wait till you're older to experience and things like that. So I don't know what I'm trying to say here. There's, there was no way to really, you know, enforce any sort of boundaries on what she was doing past a certain point. And also it seems like her mom didn't really have a lot of interest in having boundaries for her anyway. So that left her feeling even more kind of untethered in an odd way and never secure. And then when she's in the astral plane with Melanie and Oliver, that's like the important thing is like they want to teach her to crawl before she walks, before she runs or sort of a thing, not tell her everything all at once or give her all of the information about the world all at once, but in sort of measured doses that are developmentally appropriate. Yeah. I don't know that I really care for how Sydney is characterized because I think so much of it is about her being a victim and then trying to not be in a way that's sort of shown as fruitless because it's such a huge point for her, that whole situation of swapping bodies with her mother and sleeping with her boyfriend thing. Mm -hmm. And it feels like all of her attempts to get past that don't really go anywhere like until she gets the astral plane sort of thing and has to relearn some stuff yeah and to like reinforce the idea that i think that that is such a sticking point for her one of her moments of growth 
because you can't grow without a child mm-hmm. is with talking to her younger self and they talk about that sexual situation and the situation with David and the removal of power in those situations. She's continually had power taken away from her and in season three she's decided to take her agency and to not let other people take the power away from her. And I'm not sure that she's really successful in that. The fact that she doesn't get to win at the end, she finds out what's going to happen and says, or either she or Carrie say, and it's sort of the mood of the room, so we lost. Yeah, and it. I agree with you. It is weird and unsatisfying, and the only, like, I don't know, there's a, a bit of a sop to that with... Uh, Switch, the time traveler, tells her in the new timeline she'll be glorious. And, like, that's supposed to make it okay that she got such a shit hand this time, you know? Yeah, it's it's very annoying. And it doesn't really... It, it leaves kind of a bad taste in the mouth. Yeah. Do we have anything else we wanted to say about Sid? I don't think so. So uh, one thing I did want to talk about a little bit was some of the interesting constraints that were put in the series or really one big one with David's parents. Mm-hmm. They're set up in season three as being a big part of the story because throughout you have this sort of... You mean his biological parents or his adoptive parents? His biological parents. In season one, Oliver gives this big monologue about empathy and fear mm-hmm. and sort of the war between those. And then season two has a full narration and a full meta plot about the concept of insidious ideas. Right, and And, delusions. Yeah. Yeah. And like how they get into your brain and they damage you in various ways or they take over you. And how they can be more dangerous based on the context that they relate to in the outside world. Right. Some things might never be a problem if you never encounter something that makes it a problem, but other things can be deadly in the right context. Yeah. With the wonderful stylings of John Hamm to bring us those. Because John Hamm did Mad Men and now he just turns up everywhere. It's very strange. But in the first season, the narration has been passed off to be talking about time travel to explain how ideas of that would work. And instead, this idea of empathy, fear, delusions and insidious ideas is all taken on by the mantle of David's parents with his mother very much being the fear... And also the fear of delusions with her history of mental health in her family that she talks about. Mm -hmm. While Xavier ends up being all of that empathy and trying to be rational. Like, they are set up as that dichotomy for the entire season. Yeah, but there's an interesting dimension of that where, like, Xavier doesn't have to be scared because he's a telepath and a white man in the 1940s. And Gabrielle is a human woman who was in a concentration camp and has a history of mental illness and is part of the Romani people. So the power differential there, I think, has a huge bearing on like who has the capacity to be empathetic and sure. who, who needs to have some fear, honestly, in the world. And I, I think it's a little unfair to just, I don't know. I, I, I want to make sure we acknowledge that like it's reasonable for Gabrielle to take that side. Oh yeah, no, 100%. I think it's interesting from a storytelling aspect that that's how they bring those ideas into season three. Yeah. And how that might work with... In season one and two, 
we find out that David is Charles Xavier's child because they telegraph it. But they can't tell us because in those two seasons, someone else owned the right to Charles Xavier. Right. It wasn't until Sony was gave up the... I don't know. The right people owned the rights to it by <laughs> season three that they could have s- someone who could stand there and say, hi, I'm Charles Xavier, and right. that wouldn't be a problem. So until then, we get sort of implications that David's father exists. And I think one of them is a wheelchair with the X, which I don't think actually works with any of the timelines because they didn't know they were going to have the rights to him in season three. But I sort of wonder how that, that shapes the story and whether if, they had had the rights, season two would have shown Charles Xavier turn up to help out in some way or have a cameo role as an older man. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, I have no idea how that would have affected the story. I mean, I think maybe they would have given more explicit context in terms of naming him and things previously, but it's hard to say if it would have gone beyond that. Hmm. It's... Always interesting when there's been an artificial constraint put in on how a story is told like that. I don't think we've yet talked about a TV series that was cancelled before it could come to its conclusion. Uh, No, we haven't. But when we were watching season three, we weren't sure at what point, because we knew that it had been cancelled after season three, but we weren't sure sure at what point in the production of season three they found out about that. So we were kind of wondering going in, like is this actually going to have a satisfying conclusion or is it going to end kind of abruptly with the setup for season four that's never going to happen? And it turns out that it d- does conclude in a you know pretty conclusive way. It doesn't seem to have suffered that uh, kind of problem. So No, I wonder whether it was always the plan for David's plan to work or whether they were going to go back in time and something was going to happen that meant that season four happened and they had to change the last couple of episodes a bit. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that happening. And it would explain the most unsatisfying aspect of it, which is that it works. Like yeah. to, to me and you, at least, I don't know if everyone else who was watching Legion was like, yes, we want this, you know, entitled male fantasy to play out. You know, <laughs> I think it would have maybe been more true to some of the ideas in the show if that was not the way out. If you couldn't take a shortcut to being a good person by just starting all over again, like a video game. Cause that's basically what fucking happens. Like he plays his life as a video game and then he just restarts from the last save that before the problem that he encountered happens. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause by the time they get back in time, there's not really a way back. Mm-hmm. So I wonder where they could have gone with it. That would have given a season four. Like I could have seen an ending where everyone loses. Mm -hmm. And it's just depressing as all get out. Sure. Time falls apart and the world ends. I don't know. I think that it would make more sense for it to parallel the wall more and have it end with more of a like, you know, you can't run away from this. There's hard work to do. You need help from other people. And it's more him maybe getting some help from Xavier in the past, but also Farouk or something. Having there be a process when he goes back to his own timeline. You know what would have been a great ending for season three to set up a season four? What? If Xavier was able to acknowledge the faults, mm-hmm. see what the problems were, but sends David and everyone else back to the future mm-hmm. and helps them sort out the time demon problem. And then season four, old Xavier turns up. Oh, and, and finds of, him? Yeah, in the future. Hmm. They could have had an interesting storyline with that. And that would even line up with some of the choices they do make in that last episode where Xavier is 
saying like, no, I, you're right. I wasn't there for you. I'm here now. Let me be your father now. Like if they did that with David as an adult in his own timeline, Xavier old, but still Xavier and still, you know, having faith in the, in, in the goodness of mankind and the possibility for change, because that is something you see of Charles Xavier through all the comics. Like he does not give up on people. He takes in mutants who've become disenchanted with the Brotherhood of Mutants or whatever other crew Magneto's running at the time and is like, yeah, I know we were on the other side, but you you want to change and I'm going to give you that chance. So I think that would have worked a lot better and it would have also given Sid the win that we feel that she deserves. The acknowledgement that like you can't just make this horrible thing, whole horrible series of events unhappen but you can move forward and forge new paths that are healthier yeah i think that could have been interesting it would have been interesting to make it work for it to be viable for david to go back to the future with the others they would have had to have killed off less people beforehand and it would rely on david presumably spending season four getting over blaming xavier Mm mm-hmm uh, with the killing people off thing, that like I do have a couple of mild problems with it. That there's the one black character. Is there just the one? Gets killed off and turned into a computer between season two and season three. Well, unless you count the son of Clark and uh, what's Clark's husband's name? I don't. Remember. But anyway, their adopted son is also black, but he is not on screen very much because yeah. he's a child. Um, which is the other problem that I have is that. Like, I'm very happy that they included a loving, married, gay couple. And I think that they're well characterized as individuals who happen to be gay. Mm-hmm. Rather than that being their defining feature. They still kill their gays. But they wait till the last minute. Uh, <laughs> Almost. Give or take. There's like a lot of tragedy thrown at them. For anyone yeah. who's not familiar, the term kill your gays or bury your gays is a trope that you'll see in a lot of things. For a long time, it was actually, I think, a TV FCC style rule that if you included gay characters, then something terrible had to happen to them to show that that was a bad lifestyle. And it sort of carried on for a long time in the way that people appear when they're portrayed that way. Yeah, they do have to go through a lot of tragedy, but I also appreciate that it's not like that they're just, they just experience horrible tragedy and nothing else like they actually turn like the permanent disfigurement of one member of the couple into an opportunity to show a healthy relationship when things are hard and that's actually really beautiful uh, where you know there's a period of depression and there's a period of trying to redefine yourself after being physically disfigured with your face in particular and like wanting to help your partner, but there being limitations on what you can do and like just kind of having to get through those really difficult periods in life. And I think that it's great that they do show that and they show, you know, his partner being as supportive as he can being, but also being frustrated at the limitations of that. And then they show them happy and healthy later once Clark has kind of gotten through the worst of that recovery process and is starting to be able to enjoy life and be happy again. Particularly at the end, again, shortly before they kill the gays, there's like the adorable, like they're still flirty with each other in their marriage. It's adorable. But of course that's only to, well, not only, but like I think mostly used to 
make you feel worse when they then hurt the characters again, which sucks. But I still like that they show it, you know? Yeah. Like, as I say, it's upsetting that they do such a good job and then right at the end just... But it's okay. David goes back in time and it doesn't happen. None of it happens. (laughs) (sighs) They can't uh, make it never happen. They'll always be the show that did that. Yes. Precisely. (laughs) One thing I do want to make sure that we talk about is some of the aesthetic choices and also some of the musical choices that are made. The show does a very good job of making you uncomfortable. I think that the most uncomfortable thing is Lenny's eyes after she's been put into Amy's body, where they're just these oversized, different coloured eyes. And it took me a while to realise what the problem was. But there's a lot of other things, like there's an entire couple of scenes that are filmed in a room that's entirely upside down. And then the roof is glass that looks down on a street. And it's just designed to make you feel like something's wrong. Yeah, there are a lot of choices made like that. And it does remind me, again, of our conversation in the episode on the wall. Like the wall also does things like that, where you're clearly not supposed to be comfortable. You're clearly not always supposed to quite know what's going on. And some of those are weird. Like, I don't know if the mustaches on the vermilion are supposed to be a thing like that, but if they are, that's also kind of upsetting. But like in a implications of transphobia or like playing on gender expectations type of things, the teeth thing, I think Uh. that's there to make you uncomfortable. So for context, the time traveler who is known through most of it as Switch. She's only in the third season, but she's referred mainly as Switch. Apparently time travel for her, she's young, loosens your teeth. It takes too much of a toll on the body, I guess. And so periodically as she keeps going further and further back in time with David, because he keeps deciding, oh, the problem must be further and further back, she keeps losing teeth and then eventually like spits out like all of her remaining teeth in like a pool of blood and it's really gross. Um, And she's, like, testing the security of her teeth throughout that season. And you just, like, you know what's coming at some point. It's just, it's very upsetting. Um, And it plays on that whole, like, that's a common nightmare that people have that I want to say I've heard is related to change, like, anxiety about change, uh, which fits with this whole situation. But uh, I would have to say it's probably up there for me as far as, like, the most disturbing, like, trying to make you uncomfortable choices made throughout the series. I think I'd carefully forgotten about that. Um, I think it had taken a lot of work. So thank you. That's, yeah. Uh, that's great. <laughs> well, like that and like there's the entire episode where it's flashing back on Sid's life and the scenes of her essentially using her ability to self-harm and also the whole the sex scene with her mom's boyfriend like all of those things are I think are also choices made to make you uncomfortable and to create empathy for a person who's very lost and I think that is an important part of those choices is that they are always trying to do it for a reason like they're not gratuitous they are meant to emphasize that something's wrong and I think it does a good job of doing that like the show like the teeth thing like is to show that David's pushing her past her limits and making the wrong decision going too far which again makes it even more frustrating that it works which is i think one thing that we forgot to mention in our pre-ramble about john malkovich or being john malkovich not 
just John Malkovich. That'd be an odd <laughs> pre-ramble to do. We're just going to talk about all of his works in 15 minutes. Let's go. Is that a lot of that is, I think, intentionally designed to make you uncomfortable. And I think it's primarily to make you uncomfortable. I don't think it has a grand, deeper purpose behind it, personally. Yeah, like, if it does, then they don't tie it effectively to the particular concepts that you're supposed to be thinking about. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, f- I feel like we're dwelling a lot on the third season, and that, I mean, that's what we've most recently watched. But I do think it's important to note that not all of this comes just, like, out of nowhere in the third season. Like, all of this stuff is built up choices like this like the thing with stuff with sydney i think is second season yeah and in the first season when he's in the mental institution there are similar choices like that that are meant to impress upon you some of the aspects of an inpatient setting being uncomfortable and dehumanizing in certain ways yeah well i think that part of the reason is that that we're talking about season three so much is that i think that each season sort of asks a question or is David asking a question and that sort of culminates in season three and I think season three is the most interesting because I think season one is saying am I crazy what is real Mm -hmm. season two is saying am I bad and season three having answered yes in season two is saying can I change Mm -hmm. there's a couple of other aesthetic things that I don't really have ideas for why they're there beyond being kind of weird things like the animal vaporizers Mm -hmm. do you have any takeaways from that or is that just a dead end like why are they there yes i mean i think they're part of the general making people uncomfortable thing um and just communicating something is disturbing like i think that's part of not glorifying the drug use and things like that in this Mm. which i think is something that could be a pitfall especially with a lot of the other aesthetics that are very music video, very 70s and 60s um, and 80s that could be construed as drugs are cool and things. Like, I think that the really creepy and fucked up drug delivery systems that happen, including in the third season when it's this weird giant... Penguin. Penguin with... Uh, with so- No, not the penguin thing, the big animal. Oh, that That the groupies... Like inhale smoke from the teats of yeah. Like I think that that's in part like this larger thing to show that these ways of distorting your perception of reality are not good things to be doing and are a problem, and that that's not a natural thing to do. Yeah, just an aesthetic choice in season three that I think goes back to an earlier thing you were saying. You're talking about how David kind of takes over being the colonizer. Yeah, with the use of that sort of Asian appropriative hippie aesthetic. Yeah. Art for the 70s-ness. Mm-hmm. And the way that that sort of ties into ideas of colonization with that appropriation. I think that's a nice choice there. Yeah. But I think the big aesthetic thing is the music video type scenes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, there are certainly plenty of things and plenty of times in the show where a song plays in the background and that's you know that's whatever that's fairly common with legion we have full-on music videos where the actors are either lip-syncing or i think more often singing almost covers of various songs and they're very stylistic mm-hmm. i think the two that i liked the most were the use of mother from the wall at the end 
where you've got sort of David's mind and the multiple Davids moving around in straight jackets and stuff. And at the end of season two with Behind Blue Eyes, where you have Amal Farouk and David having their superhero battle with their psychic powers being shown through various lights and animals. And I think notably Farouk singing in Farsi. For part of it, not all of it, but for a lot of it, he's singing it translated into Farsi. They're songs that have been very well chosen for representing what's being talked about thematically and within a scene. Yeah. I was reading that the director and the music composer, director, person, talked about wanting the show to kind of sound like Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd as he he felt that that was a narrative of mental illness. And that does sort of continue throughout of it. But the choice to have those full music videos is very strange. Why do you think they did it? I think that it partly feeds into the overall aesthetic of this not being quite the real world and being somewhat fantastical and the world influenced by minds that can make the world different. Like there is a, there's an aspect to which I would believe that Farouk and David and Oliver can just make everyone sing and dance along with them to perform a musical number if they want to, like in the real world, because that's the kind of mutant abilities that they have. It's not as clear with Oliver that he could do that. He can, he's a telepath, but it's not as clear that he can influence other minds like that. But we know Farouk and Xavier and David can. It's interesting because the first music video that I think we get, or maybe the second, is music video-esque thing, is sort of not quite so much that. It's much more orchestrate, like it's the show being orchestrated to the music, is Oliver doing a composing style thing to create a shield out of words to the tune of Bolero. He is conducting Mm-hmm. And it's sort of part of the narrative. And then the later ones, which do seem more centered on David, are more stylistic music videos where there's a sort of question of, did that stuff happen? Were those people actually singing? Were the emotions gone through in that actually happening? Yeah. And I think the implication is they do, that they did happen. I don't know. But also I think part of it is that in some cases it's just very, very appropriate. I really like the Behind Blue Eyes one because they're both singing that song and that song is about being the bad guy. And this is at a point when we aren't really on the side of thinking David is a bad guy or might be a bad guy, but he has lived this experience of being perceived as this kind of lost case, psychotic addict person who's probably been given up on by a lot of people like his ex-girlfriend who he had been in a relationship for a long time gave up on him he was at a point in the mental hospital where they were medicating him to the point of having very little autonomy his sister didn't think he could be unsupervised you know so even if he didn't think he was a bad guy he I think had a similar perspective of having been written off in certain ways but it also foreshadows that he progresses to be legit a bad guy yeah I think that's reasonable it's also an interesting double entendre with behind blue eyes for Farouk. How so? Because aren't David's eyes blue? He was in his mind seeing, yeah, the, so. seeing the world behind blue eyes. Yeah. Um, being a, a bad man 
lurking behind blue eyes in a weirdly literal sense. So they're both the bad man and the sad man behind blue eyes. Oh, yeah, no. The I, same I, pair of blue eyes. I, I get it. I'm just, uh, huh. Like I said, really well chosen. Yes, it does get to a point where you are going, this song could have been written for this scene. Mm-hmm. How did they get to this point? Like, did they write the whole thing to get to this point so they could use this song? Like, it's... I mean, I believe it. But I do wonder whether when they did the Bolero scene with Oliver, it was a stylistic choice based on the character of Oliver. Mm -hmm. because he has been shown as this showman who likes to put on music for people and tell a story. And then because that was received well and doing weird things stylistically in that way, they went, oh, well, we should do that more. I also think there's just a trend of having a musical episode periodically in shows like this. Like The Magicians has some. There's obviously the Buffy musical episodes, like a lot of shows are doing that. So two things in response to that. One is there are three music videos in season three. So it's not one. They're not all in one episode. They're spread out across the whole season. It's episode one, episode eight, and episode six or seven. I don't remember which. Mm-hmm. Um, must be six. It does strike me as interesting because there was an interesting oddity in British TV in, I want to say, like the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm the time of shows like The Young Ones where you'd have a show where it's a comedy, sitcom-y, sketch show type thing. Well, not not a sketch show, but... Um, and then you'd get 15 minutes into a 25-minute show and then there'd suddenly be a cut and there'd be a musical act in the middle of it. There's an episode of The Young Ones where Motorhead performs. I haven't seen a lot of episodes of The Young Ones. I might have only seen that episode. And it was because in the UK they had slots for comedy shows and they had slots for dramas and then they had slots for general entertainment. So if you wanted to get a show on, you might need to appeal to the right time slot and to be a general entertainment one, you had to have a musical act so that you would get these comedy shows and stuff that would have a musical act thrown in so that they could be aired in that time slot under the BBC rules. How weird. And so I wonder whether there's any element of that in the decision, but... Well, I I don't know about that specifically, but there also might be an increasing role of having easy clips to put out to advertise your show or to get popular on social media. And Mm. musical numbers are great for that. Those are things that people will see without necessarily having the context of the show and then maybe watch the show or people will rewatch or share, which will then make sure other people know about the show. So especially given that we're seeing an increasing proportion of them as the seasons progress, or at least so many more in the third season compared to the first two, that that might be part of that shift as well. Yeah, that's a cynical view of it. know that it's necessarily cynical i mean if people enjoy it and they're really well done and they do say a lot about the show and if your actors have the talent it's also a good opportunity to show your actors range it's good for them and for their portfolios i know that there have been musical episodes that were planned pretty much because the writers and stuff found out that someone in the cast or multiple people in the cast had you know, these musical theater dancing or singing chops and we're like, we've got to work that in, you know, we've got to give you a chance to use those skills. It will be so cool. 
we didn't know we had those tools at our disposal. It is very eclectic in the show. I mean, there's a dance battle in season two. And a rap battle in season three. Right. And if you are listening to this and you've never seen the show and you do nothing else, go go and look up Oliver's monologue from season one and the rap battle from season three, because they're just fun as their own separate things. Yeah. And there are a couple, a couple of the musical numbers are sort of Bollywood. Yeah. I think take a lot of Bollywood style uh, cues. Which is interesting and could also feed into that appropriation discussion we were having. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. So I, I wonder if it's something to do with that. Yeah. So I think the last thing I want to talk about is Farouk is thousands of years old. Yes. He's like an apocalypse type mutant. Yes. And he seems to have been very strong from the beginning and just always been around. But he doesn't seem to have any connections outside of David. When we see him in the past, he's got a house or a palace full of children who have people stuck in their head it's a whole thing but he doesn't seem to have any children he doesn't seem to have much in the way of a love life there's a reference to a time traveler he once knew and i think that's about it yeah i mean he seems to have affection for the children but it's unclear how much of that is an act because xavier is there and he's trying to put xavier at ease i think it's also a question of how much of it is affection as you have for a child or affection as you have for a pet yeah, he does seem to, I don't know, they're all mute. And that's, it's unclear as to whether that's a thing that like inherently they're mute. And that's why he stuffed a bunch of other people into their brains or if they're mute because of that. He says they're mute. One of them talks to Xavier and he's surprised but holds a conversation with her. I thought maybe he was speaking with her telepathically and it's just shown as being a physical conversation. I think he's shown enough to know when he's doing that or not okay fair enough but yeah he's definitely treating them as objects because he's using them as cages so there's also the question of whether he just doesn't let them speak so yeah and maybe when they're outside his sphere of influence or when xavier is there to kind of apply a counter pressure that allows them to speak they can or he just does it in the old-fashioned way of don't fucking speak but Mm. but why do you think he doesn't have any of those connections I mean, I think that there's an argument for him not seeing other people as really real in the same way as he is or as as persons in the same way that he views himself. Like humans would be kind of like ants to him if he has the mm. power to squish them at will and manipulate their minds. I mean, not even necessarily ants, but like marionettes. He can control and manipulate however he wants except also ones that have the lifespan of like a caterpillar or something you know because he's thousands of years old he's seen untold millions of people live and die around him enacting probably slight variations on a handful of themes in terms of like personality and and life trajectory and things like that i wouldn't be surprised if it would all start to blur together and be very archetyped to a point and not hold any interest for him, which would line up with how excited he at least pretends to be to meet Charles Xavier, another person who might be his equal, but also that the other person he references as having maybe had some sort of a fling with, or at least knowing and having a conversation with is another powerful mutant, a time traveler. He only seems to really give the time of day or respect to other potentially powerful mutants. Yeah, that's fair, especially when you then consider that the other person that he seems to show a stronger affection for is David. Right. Who 
is the only person who might actually be stronger than him. Right. And it makes sense that he would see David as a child and like call him my boy and like have a very parental feeling toward him because this is a an infant who is as much like him as he's ever seen. They have the same powers, the same immense telepathic and reality altering powers. And he was there in David's mind for his entire upbringing. And so David is a real person to him in a way that no one else probably has been since forever, possibly ever. Yeah. You see a similar sort of issue play out with David's reactions to other people. Whereas Farouk sees people as ants and inferior to him. For David, he kind of questions the reality of anyone else. In the first season, like, he's just not sure whether people are real or not. And in Lenny's case, she isn't. Right. And then as he starts to decide that people are real, he instead changes his mind to view that they're not important, which he justifies to himself as a, because I'm going to change this timeline. But he's still finding reasons that people aren't important. Like, he and Farouk have a lot more in common than I'm sure he'd care to admit. Yeah, and there's an extent to which that might be partially because Farouk was a part of his mind, shaping a part of his reality for a very long time, and maybe a part, maybe internalized in some way, this idea that he's the only one who's really real and is really a person, um, and the only one whose thoughts and individuality and will actually matter, which we do see common to both David and Farouk that they do feel on some level that because they have the ability to manipulate reality and other people's minds, it's okay for them to do that. Yeah. I mean, there's a question of like, why would I be given this ability if I'm never supposed to use it? But they choose some fairly extreme ways to use it. It's true. Yeah. I think that's all the main topics that we wanted to talk about. But I think the big question that is being asked in this series is about perception and identity and like, what is the difference between who you are and how you perceive the world. What is the difference between who you are and how you perceive the world? Not how you perceive yourself in the world, but how you perceive the world. Or also how you perceive your, like what is the difference between who you are and who you think you are? I don't know. I think those are two questions. What's the difference between reality and your perception of reality? Right. And kind of by extension, what's the difference between who you are and how you're perceiving reality. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'll start. I think there's an implication in here that to a certain extent, you are the lens through which you see the world. Sorry, this is a big question. I have to think about it. That's fair. (laughs) I'm interested by what you mean by you are the lens through which you see the world. I think that undeniably, your experiences are going to shape what you prioritize in your perception of something and how your mind is going to choose to see the world. We've talked a lot about trying to understand other cultures while being stuck within your own cultural lens before. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true on an individual level as well. I mean, there's a strong reason that we're talking about this and I'm pulling out the fact that they kill the gays and the Mm -hmm. possibility of trans identities within the show. I'm primed to think about those things. Um, We haven't talked about trans identity in the show. In Being John Malkovich, that came up. It came up in the in jo- Being John Malkovich, and I was thinking about bringing up a question of whether Lenny could be identified in any way as trans. But That's fair. But I, I think that's probably a bit of a reach. I think it's probably my lens working harder than the work. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but the whole like because she's born of Benny and Lenore mm-hmm. and isn't a child of them but both of them and whether that could play any part in how she had kids but eh. anyway I think probably those the David psychic thing which is why I didn't go into it earlier I guess the problem is is that the question that you're asking is what's the difference between who you are and how you perceive the world mm-hmm. and I can tell you that's a three-part equation who well, you are keep in mind I'm not even necessarily asking your answer to that question but what message do you think that legion is conveying about that idea right because that's really what the big question is about what is this work saying in regard to these ideas of perception and reality and identity i know that you're sitting there cursing me because you already have an answer and i'm having to think about this on the spot ask you a question one more time what do you think legion is saying about the relationship between reality your perception of reality and who you are, like your identity. There's certainly an aspect to which your identity becomes the lens that distorts reality into your perception of it. I'm not sure that's a deep thing to say, but in David's insistence that he is a good person, his identity, he looks at the reality and it distorts it into a reality where he can believe that he's a good person. But then I don't know what its message is in the long term. I mean, I think that the problem is that the message is if you find that your lens is distorting reality too much, go back in time and get a different lens. Yeah, I do think that at the end of the show, that seems to be the message, that your identity is kind of inextricable from your perception of reality and can't be changed past a certain point. But I think there's also some commentary about how much power you have in reality affecting how much your perception, how much your reality is shaped by your perception of reality or like what the, the relationship between that because reality is whatever David wants it to be or can convince himself it is. And same with Farouk. Yeah. And because of that, they are rarely put in a position where they have to confront flaws in their perception they can just make their flaws of perception in perception no longer flaws they can just make reality change it but for everyone else reality is more disentangled than that and they have to figure out how to adapt and shape their perception and their identity to be effective in the reality they're in if that makes sense is any of this making sense I'm trying to get my head around what you're saying. So you're saying that within the show, there are characters who have more power over reality Mm -hmm. and their extra power over reality means that they can perceive reality how they want to. That it's more of a two-way function for them than it is for other people. Whereas characters with less power, for example, Sid. And Lenny. Yeah, I'm just picking one that's easy to go. Mm -hmm. Gets sort of stuck with their version of reality that they can't avoid. Mm -hmm. Which is why Sid comes across as being a realist while David comes across as fanciful. Right. Because David says, but we can do anything because he can do anything. Mm -hmm. And Sid's going, no, we have to abide certain rules of the world because she does have to abide by those rules. Right. So I think what the creators of the show are saying is that it's pretty great to be a straight cis white man yep 
Well, Farouk is not white. Right, but I mean... And it's pretty great to be Farouk, it seems, also. Right, but within the world, he is someone who has all the power, therefore he is representative of... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there are a lot of messages you can take about the relationship between all of these things in this show, and one of them is about, like, that at a certain point it becomes very difficult to disentangle your identity and your perception of reality like the one informs the other as you were talking about before okay but in this then there's the additional element of privilege that influences who's affected by other people's perceptions of reality like whose perceptions kind of make reality in this show literally make it so to put this into a real world analogy if you are a rich white senator Mm mm-hmm who gets to have a large hand in the crafting of laws, it can be easy to end up in a position where your reality is that you have pretty good health care and you don't need support and therefore nobody else should and you got there because you went to school and you got a good degree, which was definitely all your hard work and not any of your privilege. You have all this power... And it puts you in a position where you can believe that other people are less than you. And it's not until you get down in the dirt with them. There's a lot of air quotes in this. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, you can start to identify what the reality of that world is. Sure. I think that's only one thing to come through. I think there is also a lot of other commentary on, like, does it matter if something is real or only your perception of what's real? Because for you, it's the same thing. You can't see reality outside of your perception i think that's an important message in this as well but i i think that there is some some interesting between the lines on all of these ideas the problem with that first statement is you can't unless you have some power that lets you switch bodies as someone and see someone else's perspective that's true but even when sid is in someone else's body she's still her own mind she can't see without her own mind and that's what i'm talking about your identity and your mind like your consciousness Sure. None of us actually know what anything looks or feels like in any sort of objective sense. It's always mediated by our bodies and the way that our brains interpret those signals. And it's the same thing, I think, with other concepts, including your own identity. And I think a lot of those are things that are explored in this particular show. Hi, Shadow. Yeah. I mean, we could get into a deeper conversation about is there such a thing as reality uh... Yeah. I mean, that's is reality real if you are able to make it whatever you want? Is it actually real? How real is it? For David and Farouk, it's of limited realness. Yes. That was meandering. I think we answered a big question in there somewhere. Or sure. we just posed an even bigger question. Uh, so write in with your answers. Is reality real? How uh, real is it? <laughs> yeah. If you can make reality whatever you want it to be, how real is it? Please send your answers on a 4 by 8 postcard. Uh, So I think that answers the big question. But I think the bigger question is, is reality real? (laughs) (laughs) Um, How real is it? Are any of us real? Do we matter if David will just go and fix it? Oh, I don't know. Like it's, I know this isn't the point, but it is like such a weird ending to the show when like, David's there like, yeah, I did the thing. And like, Sid's kind of resigned to it. It's like, okay, I guess I'll be glorious. And then Carrie 
Carrie doesn't get told that she'll be glorious. She's just sad and old now. Anyway. For like five minutes until the time stream dissolves. And then she's nothing. Yes. Yep. Anyway. So I think that answers the big question. But I think the bigger question is, is the best way to pick up a woman in a mental hospital with the power of your mind? If you're David Huller, I think there are very few other options. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant his father who did exactly the same thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, that's uh weird intergenerational pattern to repeat there it is it's also like at least with sid she seems like fairly on top of things like it's not entirely clear why she's in there but like she's fairly functional like, well she she's has... she's completely functional she's a mole like right yes she's not there because she's not okay to be on her own she's there because she's pretending to not feel like she can handle things on her own so that she can get close to David. <laughs> right. I do, however, have some mild judgments for Charles Xavier. Mm. Because he sees a woman and seems to go, Ah, she's pretty. I get. I don't know. He goes to investigate. Investigates her brain and finds out a whole load of stuff about the Holocaust. And then sits and watches her a lot. Draws her. Like, doesn't necessarily seem to be communicating. There's a lot of questions that aren't really answered here. She clearly, like, has some issues dealing with some PTSD, like, kind of catatonic, working on things, probably needs help. And then he takes her away from there with the power of his mind, without her receiving treatment, and then seems to lock her in a house. Like, she never leaves that house. Every scene you see of her is either in that house or the mental hospital. Yeah, I mean, she does convey that she's ready to leave the hospital, like, to him. Um, yes, but I think that's because she's like not necessarily happy there. Like she's still clearly working through some stuff. Although to be fair, moving to a haunted house is not exactly the best place to go. So yeah, but you make a good point about her then continuing to be very isolated. I mean, it doesn't seem like that's anything that he's like enforcing or anything. But more may more be that she's just not comfortable leaving the house. Which, again, would be more to what you're talking about, about maybe she wasn't actually ready to live independently. Um, I mean, I spent but... a chunk of season three questioning whether she was still in the hospital and the house was just in her mind. Yeah. Um, it's not clear why the front doors are 50 feet away from where they should be or why she never sees another human being. And when three people turn up from the future, one of who seems to have been beaten and left in a wheelchair, her response is... Are you guys already here or is this just me going crazy? And then proceeds to have conversations with them and doesn't question any further. Doesn't say, where did you come from? What's your name? Who are you? Why are you here? Why are you standing next to me in my child's room? There's a lot of questions I have <laughs> about this whole thing. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, don't really have any good answers for that. <laughs> but, but he lets her steal his pie in the mental institution, so it's okay. Oh, well, in that case. Yeah. Um, it's the foundation I've... of any good relationship, yes. apparently. Uh, and a nice callback again to Sid and David having that interaction, I think. Or cool forward. Yeah, no. whatever. You know, we'll call back for the audience. It all seems very healthy and well-decided to me. Yeah. It's good also choices. not terribly clear why Xavier is in the mental hospital. I think that he's sort of like dealing with his trauma from the war but has 
Like, he doesn't seem to be interacting with his therapist. So at that point, he's just sort of chilling there. Yeah. His mind does seem to be okay. And then he leaves when he's ready, which seems to be after he's hung out and picked up a wife. Yeah. He seems to mainly be there because he needs, like, a break from the rest of the world on his terms. Yeah. Which he's not engaging with, as you say, he's not engaging with the therapist. And the therapist has written him off as a lost cause, like, thinks he's catatonic or something as well which he clearly isn't he does talk to people just not the therapist and it's like i don't want to talk to you um but he's just kind of hanging out it's also one of those things where it's like did you end up marrying this person because for a while they were literally the only other human being there like there were lots of people in that mental institution not just gabriella as far as i can remember i think there's only one woman there's the nurse as well that he asks where Gabrielle's from. You can't date the nurse. You shouldn't be dating the other patients. It's anyway. the 1940s. I'm sure that lines were blurrier. Hippo wasn't a thing yet. I don't think so. Write to us. Tell us if Hippo was a thing. Or don't. We could Google it, but we're not going to. Oh, this is our 30th episode. That's exciting. Hmm. That's an odd place to say that. I think that, that answers the bigger question. Do you have any fun facts? I do. I have a fun fact of the musical composer nature, which is one of the choices of music in season one is Bolero by Ravel. And some more recent studies have suggested that the melody in it might actually be the result of a mental illness. Interesting. Oh, I think I read a thing about that. Yeah. So there's a degenerative brain disease that makes you reiterate things over and over and over. A painter found themselves like painting the same thing over and over and over again, and it turned out that that was a symptom of that. And if you listen to Bolero and look at some of the other things that were going on in Ravel's life, Bolero um, has this strong undercurrent melody that repeats consistently throughout the entire piece and slowly builds on top of it but is always there in a very striking way. And people think that it probably isn't an indication that Ravel had this disease. Hmm. Yeah, I do remember seeing something about that. Maybe I can dig it out and put it in the show notes. I really hope that the piece was chosen for that knowledge. Hmm. Otherwise, it's a cool coincidence. So any fun facts? We already mentioned the Sydney Barrett thing. Okay. One of our fun facts is just all of last week's episode. Indeed. You should check it out. Last week's. The last episode. Yes, the last episode. The one on the wall by Pink Floyd. That you can just take everything that we said in that and apply it to this and it's still true. Probably, yeah. You don't have any other fun facts? I don't think so. Okay. But the one is fine, especially at the length of this recording. Ha. <laughs> Which brings us to feedback, follow-up, late thoughts. No? No, please, sir. Okay. Thank you for joining us for this exploration of Legion. If you would like to be able to hear our pre-ramble about being John Malkovich that we recorded just before this episode, go and check us out on Patreon. You can also hear our bloopers and outtakes there, get episodes early, and find us on Discord to talk to us and also listen to us record live. Uh, That's unramblings.com forward slash Patreon. We also have a YouTube channel where we post all of our podcasts. You can find it on YouTube by typing unramblings into the search bar because that's how YouTube works. Uh, We're on all social media as well. I think all the links are in the show notes below. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cool. Thanks for listening to Unramblings. We hope that you'll join us next time.
I'm sure all that's coming through. So maybe I should just wait a minute for whichever cat that is. I guess Misty. She's got her head stuck in the handle of the bag. To finish playing with the cardboard bag. You have to wait for me to finish playing with it as well. I, I am observing that kind of, or at least extrapolating it based on what I can tell across this wall of foam. Okay. Okay. 